0: I look over and there's a car, pulls up at the stop sign, stops three to five seconds, like your average normal person stop sign. And just as it gets to the driveway where I'm standing, car whips in, passenger side door flies open. I hear a slide rack on a pistol and there's something in my rib cage and the guy goes, you know what time it is? I will remember that. Like I hear that in my sleep and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like everything just kind of pauses. And I'm on the phone with Kelly and, I, and this guy's got a gun and he's, it's in my side. And all this stuff's going through my head. Like this isn't survivable, right? Like it's in my rib cage. And so I already know that the situation I'm in right now is not survivable. So I'm like, I gotta do something. And so I'm like, well, three, two, one, go. And I draw and I sort of elbow his arm at the same time. And I come up and in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna put two contact center mass of his chest and then we'll see where we go from there. Let me get past chapter one, and we'll see what happens next. I think the before it becomes a crisis is kind of the thing. Everybody's going to need help. You might just need a little. You might need a lot. You know, it's not, this isn't normal. You know, the stuff we do, and it doesn't just mean a critical incident, just years on the job, the stuff you see, the stuff you do, it grades at you you know it, it, it slowly but surely breaks you down everybody needs something and I think the faster you sort of get on it if I'm talking to somebody right now look man we all we all go get help there's just some of us talk about it some of us don't just go get the help and go get it today like start it here start it now
1: you're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Hello ATO listeners, I'm Joe King. I'm here with the amazing Misty Van Kuren and Josh Hertel and Danny Canetti, our sound guys here. Uh, Child Abuse Detective Kristen Green sitting in. First, I want to congratulate Narcotics Detective Mark Bacon on winning the 2021 Dallas Police Association Cops Cop Award. It's well-deserved and long overdue. Congrats, Mark. I'm also honored to have on a special guest co-host today. She flew in for this. She's a former guest on the show and was on episode 12. She has dedicated her life to helping first responders and military with their mental health and wellness. Dr. Tanya Glenn, thank you for coming on and seeing firsthand how low-tech we actually are.
2: I am so honored to be here. <laughs> yeah, thank thanks, you.
1: <laughs> Dr. Glenn, I'm glad you got to sit on today's guest. He's a huge fan of yours and of your books, and he also has listened to your episode three or four times, I think, uh, and your episode really spoke to him and resonated with him. You have a new book coming out. Is that correct? I do. Tell us about it.
2: So this one, it's my eighth one. It's for the dispatchers and 911 call takers, the overlooked, forgotten crowd. And uh, I was really happy to put this together. It actually, the sort of the brainchild of this was putting out that documentary last December. Yes. And we had uh, Megan Burse on there, who's a Leander dispatcher who took a 911 call for the murder of her best friend. So Megan, yeah, Megan was in the documentary and she was prepping for um, award ceremony, getting employee of the year, the Christmas tree lighting for survivors of domestic violence. She was going to light the tree. And then our kickoff, our premiere for the documentary. So she has this big week ahead of her and she has not put on her Class A uniform since uh, since the funeral. And she, she didn't want to do it. So we're standing in her closet on Sunday afternoon as I'm just kind of desensitizing her to put on that uniform. And uh, it was awesome. She put, it, she had her, the perfect shirt underneath, the one she wore that night as well, which wow. is her fat-ass brewery T-shirt. <laughs> and we're talking and do- going back and forth and back and forth, and she puts on the shirt, and she's got it. She's fine. And she looks at me, and she's like, hey, you need to write a book for dispatchers. And then the auto light in her closet went out. And she said, and apparently God has spoken too, so let's write that book. So I did. <laughs> it
1: was pretty Good. awesome. <laughs> well, Jillian <laughs> – and Jam Etheridge, they're going to be excited to read that and uh, hear about that. When is it coming out?
2: Should be early March. Right? Okay. We're in Soon. the second round of edits right now. So, All
1: right. There's no shame in failure. For a warrior, the only shame is in not trying. Colonel Dave Grossman. Today's guest grew up in Temple, Texas. He's an Army vet and graduated from Dallas PD Class 273 in 2002. He went to Southwest Patrol. He worked their Deep Knots Undercover Deployment Unit. He's actually lucky to be alive after uh, and actually sitting here today uh, from an incident in 2005. He's married to the beautiful Angela for 25 years. Father to now Officer Ryan and daughter Shelby. He's worked undercover narcs. He's now working long-ass days in Dallas PD recruiting, trying to beef up our ranks. Dallas... Sergeant Mark Rickerman. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. You ready to dive into this? Let's go.
0: All right. You nervous? A <laughs> little bit? <laughs> yeah, no yeah, no pressure at all. Doc came all the way up here for this. So um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's not screw this up. I'm here for you.
1: <laughs> After growing up in Temple, Texas, uh, you decided to go to the army. Did you consider making a career out of it?
0: Yeah, I mean that was um, and you and I have spoke before, so even from early childhood it was like, hey, um you know i, I, I want to be a cop and i want to be a soldier i mean i grew up right next to fort hood and so anybody that's from that area like you can hear the live fire ranges at night um the windows will shake so i mean you're you grow up very acclimated to the fact that fort hood is there and so um i was always kind of driven you know towards the army um and so basically right out of high school straight into basically it's it's OSIT, but basically right into basic training uh, at fort knox and and Loved it. It was, you know, to quote Fury, you know, it was the best job I ever had. All
1: right. What point did you want to become an officer and why?
0: Um, I still in the back of my mind, I still had that thing where I wanted to be a police officer. Um, I, I joke with some folks that, you know, basically to same reason some of us do the job, I guess, is to atone for the sins of our youth. Um, I'm still trying that. So, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, sometimes yeah. we do, sometimes we don't. Um, and then there, there kind of came a point in the army where things weren't looking really good. I was a little, I was a little angry, and uh, I was like, "Hey, this is, you know, this is kind of a good time to punch out while I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I've done this. I'm happy to be here. I wouldn't, if, if I could go back, I'd go back and join the army all over again." Uh, but I was at a point where I'm like, "Hey, I'm getting a little older. Things aren't really kind of going the way I want them to. I think it's time for chapter 2. And so that's this became chapter two. Well, going into chapter two, why DPD, and you, do you apply for other departments? I. So the first thing I did was growing up in Temple, you know, the, the closest big city was Austin. And so I'm dating my story here a little bit. about I called down to Austin PD, I'm like, hey, I'm interested. I was still in the Army at the time, obviously. Um, and so they mail me my application packet. And this manila folder, this manila envelope shows up at the house, and it's like an inch and a half thick. It's like half a ream of paper. And I open it up. I'm like, what the hell is this? And so I open it, and it's the application packet for Austin. I start flipping through it. It's like 10-point font. like gigantic packet you're reading this yeah i'm like no i'm not no so i'm now not an austin police officer because their packet was too big so i i applied for uh in one week richardson had a test and i had some family from richardson um and dallas had a test so i i take off from work come up here test for richardson um the test goes phenomenal Um, they were hiring a handful of officers that year and I, I was, I thought it was a lock. So I get a hold of my wife on the way home. I'm like, Hey, I'm pretty much hired by Richards. And now we know the process with with police hiring. Um, yeah, you know, I left that day like, Oh, I mean, I've got a job, you know, that wasn't, it. it wasn't even close to the truth, but so I'm like, yeah, I'm not even coming back up here this weekend for Dallas. I mean, this, this is a lock and, uh, she probably regrets it still, but she was like, you should at least, you know, don't put all your eggs in that basket. You should probably still go up there and test for Dallas fine i'll drive all the way back up to dallas and so i tested for dallas best thing i ever did because about two weeks later i get a letter from richardson that was like hey it's not you it's me uh you know, <laughs> or, you know we're, we've decided to go a different direction <laughs> um and so that was uh we so now you know I here go you through are the, yeah i go through the whole process and i get the phone call and it's like hey you know you're in you'll be in the class starting in january and i had terminal leave saved up from the army so i was like perfect so, I, I discharged from the Army right before Christmas and hung out, uh, like grew facial hair for the first time in my adult life for like a month, and then started the, shaved it off the day before the Academy, and then showed up at the Academy in January of 02.
3: It pays to go with the uh, true-false applications, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... And yeah. yeah. our pin the tail on the donkey uh, <laughs> test that we
1: put people through. Hey, I would like I would Have like to... Blindfolded. it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Now, now that I'm on the other side of that, uh, <laughs> things things are things were definitely a little different. Oh my um, gosh! Back in 2001, <laughs> uh, you know, applying and stuff like that, and it was again, you know, you'd have hundreds of people at these events and stuff. Oh, so it was man. things were a little more competitive right after 9/11. So as you can imagine, I was, I don't know, somebody messed up somewhere, and Tuesday it'll be 20 years. Wow!
1: So. No, they were they were. I remember in 2000 they were shuffling people through the academy back then, but. I think they got it right with you. You graduated Class 273 and you went out to Southwest Patrol. What was that like?
0: Um, I mean, I I was honored to go to the best patrol station in the city. Um,
1: (coughs) We'll we'll edit that out.
0: (laughs) I keep hearing all this Southeast love every episode, and I'm like, you know, for Randy and some of the other folks, I'm like, man, I got to stand up for for Channel 4. Um, I love it. It was my first pick. Uh, My little wish list was like Southwest, Southwest, Southwest. I think I threw Southeast on there somewhere um mm-hmm. but uh it was your first pick wasn't it oh yeah southwest 100 mm-hmm. percent. yeah southeast, no it was yeah. South, southwest 100 percent first pick
1: a lot of people are scared to go to southeast it's understandable
0: <laughs> well for me it was it was you know it was a ge- geography thing you know so it was closer <laughs> oh, uh, man. so now i went to southwest right off the bat and man i loved it i had um to this day i, I jokingly call him dad he probably doesn't appreciate that because well, i'm 47 years old um but bobby parrot was one of my trainers mm. and uh Man, for for better, for worse, and not on his side, you know, it's on me, but probably 80% of the cop that I ever was was Bobby, you know, was a phase of training from Bobby Parrott. I mean, it was when, so my son later, you know, jumped the shark here. my son ends up joining the department and and Bobby's at the academy. Mm. And so Bobby's literally trained two generations of my family in the job. And I couldn't be more happy when I found out that, that, Bobby was at the academy when Ryan was there. I was like, "Wow." You yeah. He,
1: now, he, now, shout out to Bobby. He's on mounted unit. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah. He's yeah. He's no fibbing. Like he's, no, he's one also- of my heroes.
1: You worked patrol, and then you went into the Southwest Deep Nights deployment. Can you descri- describe to a listener what deployment is?
0: Um, yeah, let me throw my little asterisk here. You know, we were the BMV bait team uh, at okay. the time. I think the term deployment um, was copyrighted by another unit and so uh
1: well it was copyrighted by the kind of the godfather of yeah yeah i mean deservedly so it, yeah. yeah
0: it's, it's kind of like if somebody else decided they were going to create a soft drink and call it coke and somebody else is like eh, we kind Hot of Pepsi. already have that yeah, yeah. yeah um yeah the so the day's deployment actual deployment unit at southwest was i mean they're those guys were awesome um sergeant conover yeah sergeant conover's group boo bland those guys i mean wow those guys were amazing and i I did a little stint with them on training you know where you pawn your rookie off on somebody for the day yeah and like foot chase setting up on a guy running through a drainage it was crazy um i was like man i really want to be like these guys and so we kind of had we were like diet deployment basically so we were (laughs) the the bmv bait team and it's light. yeah deployment light um so deployments, basically you're plain clothes. You're not an undercover officer per se. Um, and that, that kind of goes into what happened the night of my incident was, you know, you still have a badge on you, you still carry your weapon in a holster, all that kind of stuff. You're just, you just wear plain clothes. Um, but we would do surveillance operations. A lot of what we did, again, we were called the BMV ba- team. BMV was huge at the time. It set burglary of motor vehicle was yep. big at the time at Southwest. Um, it's big everywhere, but at the time it was, it was really bad. And so we basically went to the property room, signed out a bunch of stuff um, that looked like it would be stolen. And then we would put it in the back of a pickup truck and like go parking on loop 12 and then sit in the Fiat. well at the time the Fiesta parking lot and just sit there and stare at the back of the truck and wait for somebody to- Some sorry I to show up, take it. Yeah, somebody take it. Then we'd, we'd hop up, we'd arrest him, or we'd, we'd you know, lay on top of buildings all night long. We had uh, the folks that were taking the bus up to Windstar the little old ladies that would go to Winstar to gamble late at night, and so their cars would get hit. So we'd lay up on top of the gravel roof of the shopping center there at Cocker Hill in Illinois and waiting mm-hmm. to see some guys walking through the cars.
3: You'd you'd wake up to the sun, and the stuff was gone, and you guys got a good night. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, man, no do I drop Southwest. a car? Do I drop – you
0: know. <laughs> Look, Josh, I don't know how they did things at Southeast, but at Southwest, you know, we were the consummate professionals, so. I
1: want to go, go into the night of December 4, 2005. Uh, you had you had something that kind of changed your life, shaped you uh, as a person, as a professional. Uh, can you kind of describe that whole that whole in, uh, night and incident?
0: So that was the the December third, going into December fourth. Uh, basically, we were out doing what we do every night. We were looking for BMV suspects, and that particular night, there was some kind of I want to say there was some kind of event at the Texas Theater um, because we're driving around our own, you know we were I think we worked 10 to six at the time and there's a ton of cars up on Jefferson. All the parking lots are basically full. Um, and it's all higher end nicer cars. So that time of night, nice cars, it typically didn't happen in that area. And, uh, so we're like, all right, well, we know what we're going to be working tonight. It's, you know, all these folks coming down from North Dallas or whatnot, and they're down here and their cars are parked in all these little dark parking lots and stuff. There's, we'll probably have some B and B's tonight. So we probably need to watch this. um, so that's sort of where we focused our attention right off the bat. Uh, and then, sure enough, we weren't there, man, it probably wasn't 15, 20 minutes, and uh, see a guy kind of come – it was almost cartoonish. There's a guy comes, like, slinking out of the alley with a hoodie on with his hands in his pockets.
1: With a bag that had a dollar sign on the side? <laughs> no, I mean, kept, almost. Yeah. yeah, he
0: was almost wearing, the like, the little – mask. The yeah. bandit yeah. mask. Yeah. And, the, yeah, he comes out. I'm like, hey, we got one. And sure enough, you know, he starts looking in car windows – I'm like, hey, I think we got us, you know, you know, contestant number 1 has, has made his way to the stage. And uh, I see him kind of dip back into the alley and then he comes out and he's got a rock in his hand. I'm li- this is like cartoonish. I'm like, man, I'm, you know, this is well before Ashton Kutcher and Punkton stuff, but I'm like this has got to be a joke. Like yeah. this is just super obvious. Guy's got a rock walking out of the alley to the cars. I'm like, hey, this guy's probably going to hit something we need to set up on him. So like right off the bat, no sitting around, no waiting, like you know, we're at work and we're about to have a good deal. So, um, but like even with that particular night, so if I can go like back, like what even had me at that spot that day? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so like, I wasn't even supposed to be at work. Okay. Um, we had had a very close personal friend of the family. Um, she was diagnosed with bone cancer in May. So this is December. Um, and she has a, a, a very long, very painful battle with cancer. Um, she was my son's godmother um she grew uh, my wife grew up next to um anita and her husband so my wife was very close with anita um, my father worked with anita's husband at the railroad they were both railroaders so i had known anita from company picnics stuff like that as a kid so i knew anita as a kid my wife knew anita as a kid we didn't know each other until high school so we had like this mutual close friend family member kind of thing um, but didn't realize until after, you know, we were married and whatnot, I'm like, Hey, how do you know her? And you know how close we'd kind of been. So she passes away on Wednesday, which would have been like the first or something. It's Wednesday of the week. So we immediately go down. We, I call off work. We go down to temple, um, for all the usual, you know, the viewing and the family time. And cause it was, it was like a family member passing. Right. So we go down there for that. Um, the funeral is Saturday, so I'm a pallbearer, uh, go to the funeral, get done at the funeral and just emotionally spent just, I mean, basically from the time we got the call until Saturday is just all the things around like a family death. And so I'm just, we're just kind of spent. And so we pack up our stuff, heading back home. We go back home just cause we've been down there all week. And, uh, Angela actually had to remind like she remembered everything it's weird how your mind kind of works and the weird memories that you have and don't have we're sitting at home uh Ryan and I are playing GoldenEye on the N64 you know shout out to all my gamers out there uh and James Bond fan yeah so we're playing James Bond on the N64 whatever it's about nine o'clock I get up and I walk into the bedroom and I'm like hey, I'm going to work and Angela's like what I'm like yeah I'm my mind's not right. I'm, I'm tired of crying. I'm tired of being sad. I need to get back into the routine. Um, I'm going to work. So, you know, it's, okay. I'm, I guess so. So I still have my dress socks on from my suit that morning. Like I've still got my white undershirt on. I'm just, I'm just sitting in the game game room, just playing video games with my kid. You know, I think Ryan was 10 at the time. Um, throw on my little wool Navy pea coat and my Harley ball cap and I'm off to work i just go to work so i show up at the station you know hey, what are you doing here i thought you're on a v-day like yeah but man i'm just i'd rather be here you know so we run our intel and we hit the streets so that now fast forward now we're at work like half an hour i leave the station i go to the sonic at zang in illinois i pick up some food i'm like eating in my truck and we head off and find this guy and so that I only go back to say like this day kind of started off bad from jump and like sometimes I guess. Yeah. You like listen to those instincts. Like if somebody's telling something's telling you like, Hey, you know, I'm a lot more susceptible to my spidey senses now, like probably shouldn't have gone to work. Right. But I go to work anyway, because again, I was young and that was my happy place. So we find this guy, we go set up on him. I'm down the street. Uh, and sure enough, we're watching. We're watching the car a lot. He kind of disappears, reappears, disappears, reappears. Anybody that's ever set up and done, um, I mean, I know you've said everybody here is set up on like a dope house or something. You just kind of watch, and you're just waiting. You're like, I just need that trigger so we can do what we're going to do, right? Minding my business like a block away, here comes old dude. And I'm driving, I want to say it was like a 93. I've got like a 93 Ford Bronco full-size. I call it like the OJ Signature Series, like the full-size Eddie Bauer Bronco, right? It's super obvious, right? So a guy comes walking up to the car. He's like, hey, man, why are you following me? I'm like, I'm not. I'm not following you. What are you talking about? He's like, man, you've been following me up and down the street. Why are you following me? And, like, we already kind of had, like, built-in cover stories anyway. And they weren't great. They wouldn't have passed Mustard, like, in narcotics or something like that. But you just kind of had to explain why you were parked in front of somebody's house all night or whatever. And I'm like, Hey man, I'm trying to repo a car. You know, I'm just waiting on this car to show up. You know, why are you messing with me? Now you're messing with my money. You know, he's like, well, can you give me some money to get something to eat? I'm like, nah, man, I got no money. He's like, all right. So he walks off. So I'm on the radio. Hey, I'm burn. I was like, I don't know if he knows I'm police, but he knows I'm here. I can't follow this guy anymore Um. So I need to pull off. So I get on the radio. Everybody's like, we all, everybody moves. I go pull off. One thing leads to another. If anybody's ever done mobile surveillance on a pedestrian and you're in a vehicle, it's not the most fun thing in the world because, you know, a car just can't get everywhere a person can, and you can't look super obvious driving down the street following the guy. Especially in a Bronco. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. And I think I think Eddie's in, like, a, a line van, like the big <laughs> – yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it was, like, when I say we were, de- you know, deployment light, like, I'm not, like, we didn't, yeah. So, I can't remember what Clint's in. He'd kill me for not remembering. You um, go. Possibly at this point. And then Kelly's in the Lincoln <laughs> basket. Kelly's in a, a Lincoln oh, um, yeah. town car. Wow. Yes, yeah, so we had some super low-key vehicles, right? So, we all moved, transition. we end up losing the guy. And uh, Sarge calls me. And I used to get chewed out all the time because I had a thing for getting out of my car to go find people. And a, hindsight, again, 20-year guy, yeah, don't get out of your car and go walk through apartment complexes at 3 o'clock in the morning looking for a suspect, right? It's not, probably not the best thing to do. So I would get deservedly chewed out for that kind of stuff. Um, Sarge called me, he's like, hey, if you get out of your truck, do you think you can find this guy? Like, hell yeah, he's, got, he's in like a two-square block area. He's got to be right here. So he's like, "All right, come dump all your stuff and go find this guy." It's like, "All right, yeah, he's taking me off the leash. Here we go." So I go dump all my stuff. I start walking. Kelly's my close cover, um, and we're right off of Jefferson. And uh, I'm talking, and it's same thing we've done hundred times. So I'm on the phone, just just cracking jokes with Kelly, you know, Kelly White. And uh, I'm walking along, going down the street. I'm like, "All right, I'm here." And, like one of the guys drives by me. I get a little bit further down. One of the other guys drives by me. You know, everybody's keeping eyes on me. Well, now I've got to go into the neighborhood and kind of disappear. So Kelly's like half a block away, and uh, go onto the street. And I get it to the corner of Sunset and Adams, and I'm like, "Hey, uh, you know, hey, if you hear me scream like a little girl, you know, this this dude jumped out of the tree on me over here." And Kelly's laughing. I'm laughing. Turn down the street. And I get to, I don't know what the official term for it is. If anybody else does, I don't know if there's any urban planners in the room. The place where a driveway and a sidewalk meets. So if I can paint the picture there. So the sidewalk is moving along and there's a driveway. So I'm walking on the sidewalk, but I'm in a driveway, if that makes sense. I look over and there's a car, pulls up to the stop sign. It's like a two-way stop there. Pulls up to the stop sign, stops like three to five seconds, like your average normal person stop sign. I just kind of casually look over. They stop. No big deal. I keep walking. Car moves on from the stop sign, and just as it gets to the driveway, where I'm standing, um, car whips in. Passenger side door flies open. I hear a slide rack on a pistol, and there's something in my rib cage. And the guy goes, "You know what time it is?" Like I remember that. Like I hear that in my sleep. And I'm like, "You've got to be kidding me!" Like everything just kind of pauses. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I just got got, you know? I'm just minding my business, doing my thing. Like, my guard is not up. It's I'm just talking on the phone to a buddy, walking down the street at 1230 in the morning in Oak Cliff, which, again, in hindsight, maybe not the smartest thing to do. Uh, and I'm on the phone with Kelly, and, I, and this guy's got a gun, and he's it's in my side. And all this stuff's going through my head. And I'm like, that's not... Like, this isn't survivable, right? Like, it's in my rib cage. So there's no cool, like, judo move. Like, they don't teach that one in the academy. There's no, like, grab-the-gun-from-him kind of Steven Seagal move that's going to get me out of this. Um, and I'm on the phone with Kelly, and I'm like, hey, man, just don't shoot me. You know, hey, you don't need the gun, man, just don't shoot me. And I'm not saying it to him. I'm saying it into the phone because Kelly's, like, half a block away. And, man, I love and respect Kelly White. And all I'm thinking in this moment is I'm like, dude, don't come around that corner right now, and get shot. Like I can ha- I can handle this. We'll work this out. But don't, you know, don't come around the corner and get shot. So I'm like, hey man, just don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. And so you know, he's like, you know, we start doing the dance. I'm like, hey man, here's my keys. You know, to a truck that's four blocks away. I was like, here's my wallet which had like $2 in it, just left Sonic. I mean, he'd have been better off getting my lunch that was in the truck. Um, I'm like, hey man, just here's my keys, here's my wallet, just don't shoot me, don't shoot me. And so now I'm like trying to figure out how to get to my gun but I can't go anywhere from where we're at with the gun in my side. Um, and so he starts trying to go in my pockets. And one of the things about, you know, again, deployment being different than being undercover in narcotics is, you know, we carried our badges on us and our weapons were in holsters and stuff like that. And so he starts going to my pockets and my badge is in my left front pants pocket. And so he goes in my right one. I'm like, see, man, I told you I don't have anything. I already gave you everything. thing. I don't have anything, you know. So he goes in my left front pants pocket and instinctively I reach in my pocket at the same time. So I kind of cover my badge. So we both reach into my pocket, not a lot of room in a pair of pants pocket, but we're, we're both like, you know, dual diving into my pocket here. Our hands come out. I was like, see, man, I don't have anything. Well, he goes to reach in again. Well, I go to reach in again. So third time we do this little dance, he goes to reach in, I go to reach in. I guess he's wised up. So he just grabs my wrist and pulls my wrist out of my pocket or my hand out of my pocket. And so like instinctively, for whatever reason, I held on to my badge. So we had just lost Brian Jackson and Fort Worth had just lost Hank Nava. And so like my class A's were hanging up in my uniform for Nava's funeral the next week. And I had the electrical tape because at the time, I'm a rookie, I'm too cheap to go buy the little $8 elastic band. So we would just put electrical tape on our badge. And for those of you that know the Dallas badge, there's a D in the middle of the star and it's raised. In the upper right-hand corner of the inside of the D is an air bubble in the electrical tape before I didn't put it on all the way. And I look down, and we're, Doc, we're closer than you and I are. Obviously, we're, we're at arm's distance. He's holding the pistol. And I look down, and I can see the air bubble. And, and this is a dark sidewalk, you know, in the middle of the night. And there's an air bubble in the in the tape. And I look at the badge, and I look at him. We both look at the badge and we look at each other and his whole expression changes. And I'm like, well, round one. I was like, here we go. This is, you know, it's, it's on now. There's no, there's no mystery. No, there's no mystery left. There's no nothing. It's actor or, or don't act. And so when his face changes, I know what's about to happen. And so I already know that the situation I'm in right now is not survivable. So I'm like, I got to do something. I just don't know how it's going to turn out. So By this time, I've already cleared leather, basically, in my holster. I'm under my peacoat. He can't see what's going on. I'm bladed. Um, And so I'm like, well, three, two, one, go. And I draw, and I sort of elbow his arm at the same time. And I come up, and in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'm going to put two contact center mass of his chest. And then we'll see where we go from there. Let me get past chapter one, and we'll see what happens next. So I elbow his weapon. I come up, I go to pull the trigger twice. Apparently, this guy's never been to any kind of firearm safety training at all. He doesn't know you keep your finger off the trigger until you intend to fire. So when I elbow the gun, his firearm discharges before mine does. He beat me at the race. So I come up like this. He comes across like this. And for those of you in the studio, so I've got a contact scar right here your forearm yeah in my right dead center of my top right forearm so as I come up his weapon goes over first round hits me in the forearm exits my tricep um, blows my arm down uh, my two rounds that were meant for his center mask go into the sidewalk I assume we never found him um, he fires auditory exclusion kind of kicks in I don't know how many rounds we just hit there's just pops um, he takes off running. I go down. Um, I go down, he's running away. Um, and I'm like, this hand's not working, arms not working. So I'm kind of like fighting my hand to get my, the gun out. Cause I need you know, I kind of need this. So I get the gun out. He's running away. He's running away from me. And there's a bunch of like two story wooden houses there. And again, time slows down. It's, you know, there's, there's folks that are like, there's no way you can remember all this stuff. But if you've been there, you remember all this stuff. It's goofy the stuff you remember. I'm like, man, if I just start ripping rounds, there's there's kids that live in these houses because we've dealt with the kids over there before. I'm like if I just start ripping rounds into this house, you know who knows what I'm going to hit. And he's running away, and so I'm like, man, front page Dallas Morning News tomorrow is going to be police officer shoots suspect in the back. I was like, he's leaving, I'm fine. Let's just you know we'll call this a draw. And, you know, I'll let Kelly worry about this in a minute. And he gets about 10 yards away and turns around. Decides he wants round two. Um, so he turns around. I, I try to come up to sights. Now I'm offhanded laying down on the ground. Um, he starts shooting. And his first round hits me in the right foot. And it's weird how your brain does stuff. But, like, I superimpose the muzzle flash from his pistol and like when the pain hit my foot, I like immediately looked down at my foot. So my brain superimposes the muzzle flash onto my foot. And so it looks like my foot has exploded. Like cartoon style. And at that point I was like, All right, the the gloves are off. I don't care anymore. And I just start ripping rounds. And I'm shooting a SIG two two six, three fifty seven caliber, one handed, laying down. For those of you that have carried the SIG, I love my SIG, but man, that is not a one-handed gun. And I'm just ripping bullets at this point. And he fires one more round. We figure out after the fact, when we went back and sort of looked at the scene. Um, I guess when I, he wasn't expecting this to be a two-way gunfight. So when I start shooting back, things get real for him. Um, and the weapon he was firing, which my buddy John made me promise not to say that it was a high point. Um, So high points have really big, yeah, pause for dramatic effect. Um, High points have really big uh, magazine eject buttons on them, right? So we assume what happened was when I start shooting back, he dumps his mag. So because we found a mag with some rounds still in it. Um, I hear a round go over my head. We found that one in the wall. Sounds like a bumblebee. You know, for anybody that's ever had rounds go, Danny, I mean, for anybody that's ever had rounds go past them. It doesn't sound like it does on TV. It was like this weird little bumblebee kind of sound, and then he takes off. Well, at this point, Kelly's finally made it here. This has all been maybe 10 seconds tops. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything I've just spent the last probably 20 minutes, I guess, talking about, like 10 seconds go by. So Kelly comes around the corner on two wheels. One of my rounds takes out the back window of the car, and so dude takes up. When the shooting – I forgot to mention – when the shooting first starts, the driver – Is like, nope. He checks out. He starts driving down the street. He gets about halfway down the block and stops. One of my rounds, just by sheer luck, goes over his left ear, lodges in the A-pillar, but it takes out the back window. So Kelly comes around the corner in the link basket on, like, two wheels. I mean, he could drive the hell out of that Lincoln. He comes around the corner on two wheels. Guy runs down the street, jumps on the trunk, Terminator 2 style, and they take off and kelly's hot on his tail and i'm kind of laying there and i'm like all right well there's that so like there's this like kind of a pause because kelly's hauling ass away but the bad guy and it's just like me in the sidewalk so i'm like well let me kind of get my affairs in order here and again we're deployment so i've got a radio in my in my coat reach over there with my one i say my good arm my left hand i can't do anything with this thing but Reach in, pull my radio out, turn the radio on, and just instinctively just go to key the mic. I don't stop and listen. I don't check to see if the radio is clear. I just grab the radio and go. I'm like, hey, 4202 officer down. I let go of the the, the button, and I hear Kelly. I'm like, oh, crap. They're in a car chase. They're They're busy right now. All right. So I set the radio down flip it over to channel 5. Channel 5 is northwest patrol for your listeners. Um each patrol station has its own radio channel, so we talk about 4, 4 is southwest, 5 is northwest. And if you care, southeast is 3. Um <laughs> sorry. They already know that. So I flip I flip over to I flip over to 5 and same thing. I pick up the radio and I'm like 4202 officer down. And god love them. I I love I love me some dispatchers. Um uh, I already plan on buying a copy of your book for one of my favorite ones, who's since left the department. Uh, she comes back up and she's like, uh, 4202, forty two oh two, Be advised, uh, you're on the wrong channel." <laughs> Which I get now. It's I just said, officer down. She's just trying to let me know, hey, you're not on your channel, right? And if you're calling for help, you've reached the wrong number, basically. And I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm like, you know, like so. I'm like just staring at the radio, like.
4: God damn! I can't really? get anything
0: to work right for me tonight, right? You know, so I'm 42-02, understood. Um, but my channel's busy chasing the guy that just shot me. Can I get an ambulance to Sunset and Adams, please? And just silence. You know, everybody jokes about and talks about stories where it's like crickets on the radio. Just dead quiet. Because you got to think about it from their perspective. you're on another channel, some schmuck you've never heard of before with a four-digit call sign just came on says, Officer Down, and yeah, I, I know, but I'm on another channel. If you guys could come help me, that'd be great. Because oh, my nonchalant. channel, yeah, because yeah. my channel's busy. <laughs> and uh, so then the radio just explodes. Um, and for those you know, uh, Rudloff has a rookie. Rudloff's on his way. Um, everybody's. It's just. It's about to start raining polies, but from a different channel. So at the time, you know, West Dallas still was Channel 5. It was Northwest. So all these guys are coming from like West Dallas and stuff. They don't have, they don't know Channel 4. So it's like, it's just a mess. They're trying to, the dispatchers trying to give them directions. It's not, I'm like, all right, ambulance is on its way. Kelly's going to catch the bad guy. Okay. So set my radio down, pull out my phone. All right. Two years before this, it was like two years and a month. Um, like my best friend in the world, Eddie Coffee got shot. And I know one of the things that kind of when his wife was talking about his shooting was his partner had called him. His partner had called her um, and notified. And I was like, well, I don't want somebody else to tell Angela I've been hurt. I I need to tell her. So I pull out my cell phone. I call Angela, like, hey, hey, babe. And I've been at work like two and a half hours at this point, right? Hey, babe, I've been shot, but I'm okay. And she goes, bullshit. Like, right, like d- no pause, no nothing. She's like, bullshit. I was like, no, seriously. I was like, I think I've been shot twice in the arm and once in the foot. Um, but I'm fine. Um, Eddie will call you in a minute, let you know what's going on. I just wanted you to hear it from me. And then I'm like, she's trying to talk back to me, and I have a call on the other line from my sergeant. I'm like, hey, babe, sergeant's calling. Got to let you go. Click.
2: <laughs> oh,
0: if the opportunity ever presents itself <laughs> to any of your listeners.
1: <clears throat>
0: and, like, take that moment. I'm not saying let the call go to voicemail necessarily, but kind of take a moment and don't be like, hey, got to go click. You know, take a moment to at least say, hey, I love you. Talk to you in a minute. Something. Um, so I call the boss or the boss is calling. I get on the phone. He's like, hey, are you OK? Because, again, Channel 4 is doing its own thing. <laughs> Nobody knows, what's going, nobody knows what's going on with me. Um, and fun fact, uh, a cell phone, at least at the time, 2005 technology, a cell phone will cut out gunshots to protect the microphone, basically. So Kelly never heard the shot. Nobody ever heard the shots. Wow. So nobody knows that I've been shot. Nobody knows anything. They just know all hell's breaking loose. And Kelly's chasing some guy. So Sarge is like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, no, man, I've been shot. And you just hear the the gas you just hear him hit the accelerator he's like where are you so I, you know he, they knew where i was they knew the intersection i was at but i was about two houses down so now it's it's just raining police you know everybody's on their way now and so the problem was when i came in and stepped on kelly with the car chase kelly was at like 12th and bishop or something so if you listen to the radio uh, tape it's you hear 4202 officer down then you hear 12th and bishop so everybody's heading there. The ambulance, everybody else is heading there. Well, little o me, I'm at Sunset and Adams, just kind of minding my business, um, waiting. So it took about eight, a- eight minutes for the ambulance to get there, which is, I mean, that's not that long. I mean, eight minutes isn't that long, but it's, it's a long time to be sitting yeah. on a sidewalk, hiding behind a tree that no and I mean, that tree, the tree that I got behind for cover was about as wide as this 7-Eleven coffee cup. At the, now at the time it looked like a sequoia, like it's when your mind plays you can't tricks a on you. Car like, through it, yeah. Like I'm looking for, I'm it's looking for redwood. I'm looking for cover, so I jump behind this tree. Right, this tree, Shrub. and it's it's literally for those of you. I mean, it's a it's a 7-Eleven coffee cup. I mean, the tree is now since rotted and gone away. I've driven by it a thousand times, but it's this little bitty sapling that I'm like hiding behind. That's my cover, right? So, and that's that's
1: that. In those eight minutes, can you describe and I like Doc to jump in on this, describe what was going through your head to get you to that because eight minutes
0: probably sound it felt like eighty minutes. Oh I, I could have I mean, I could have done a lot of stuff in those I, like I wish I wish I had those eight minutes like every time I've got like a honeydew list. Yeah. Like I seem like I could have done so much stuff in those eight minutes. like I could have cleaned my garage out all this stuff. Um, right after Eddie was hurt, uh, somebody, God knows who, I don't know. Somebody gave him a copy of Colonel Dave Grossman's bulletproof mind seminar. And so I then got a copy of it. Um, cause this is, this is back in the burn DVD days or burn CDs. So we burned a bunch of copies of this and everybody listened to it. Well, there's, there's a part of the seminar, which is also in his book on combat, um, that talks about condition black and talks about the I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know, Doc. Are you familiar with, with Colonel Grossman's Very. work? And, yeah. He okay. deemed me the
2: warrior healer. That's where that okay, came from. Yeah.
0: I thought that you guys had worked together. Yeah. Um, and so with, I had listened to the part about Condition Black, yeah. I don't know how many times. And so I kind of did this mental checklist of everything he goes through. And I'm like, all right, audit okay, the, the gunshots didn't sound loud. Okay, that's auditory exclusion. Okay, I had tunnel vision. All right, that's normal. I was like, all right, I'm clearly leaking, but I'm not leaking that bad. Okay, that's vasoconstriction. So I'm like kind of going through. I'm like, okay, so all the blood is pooling in my core. That's why I'm not bleeding that bad. Okay, this is normal. Um, So I was kind of going through the checklist of everything he talks about. And, like, I could feel my heart rate lowering because I was like, okay, this is normal. This is normal. This is normal. And at the time, I'm like, okay, I'm hitting the arm. I'm hitting the foot. No big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, like nobody dies from getting shot in the foot, right? So I feel myself sort of calming down. And so I, I think that something that helped me with this was, was you know, I, I know that you teach, you know, the educate and the normalize, like as an after effect. Like, hey, here's what you experienced and here's why it's normal. I think I was very fortunate that I'd, I was familiar with it at least beforehand. Right. So it was already kind of in my mind. And so once it had happened, I'm like, all right, every, this is all normal like none of this is weird like this is this is the way it's supposed to be working everything is functioning properly and so even up until the point that the ambulance got there by the time the ambulance got there I'm like all right this is we're good you know everything's going to be okay yeah. at least as far as you know I'm not going to die here on a sidewalk alone so the thought never crossed my mind I'm like all right this is going to suck That's you know it's right before christmas you know but yeah. everything's going to be okay
2: and this is this is the beauty of training right here. So you know, I I train in terms of the aftermath of a trauma. So you know if you're okay or if you're not okay. But it's it's officers like like the ones on the podcast that really need to get into the academy and train all this because your your DVD or CD from Grossman basically told you what to expect and what's normal and why these are happening, why these things are happening to you, and how great is that? Because what happens is with knowledge. What happens is you then get into the mode where you're like, okay, I know, I know what this is. I've read it. I've, I've heard this. And, and what it does is it gives you the opportunity to slow down and think your way through it, which is phenomenal, right? When I worked at the Marine Corps, I did pre-deployment briefs, and I used to get emails from Marines in Fallujah, and they would say they would start the email with "Ma'am," and then they would say, "Everything you said in the brief, I never thought will happen to me," and I want to tell you everything you said has happened to me, and I know what to do. And that's the key, right? Plus, Plus the fact that you were able to really talk to yourself and remain calm. You know, it's it's when people freak out and they start hyperventilating and they they're they're inconsolable and they can't stop and they can't think through it. That, you know, those are the ones who who don't survive, obviously, because they they bleed out. You know, you can have a small wound and bleed out because you're panicking. And so what a what a great story and what a great story to share with so many people who are who are basically on the line who haven't been in a situation like this so that they know. Just, just how to keep that, that education piece in their mind to survive it. Awesome,
0: awesome. What's well, that's one of the things I told Joe when Joe first was like, "Hey, do you want to go on the podcast?" And I'm like, "My story's boring.
1: It's like, really not."
0: No. But, what, but like I said, and I know the mics weren't rolling in this snap, but like I'm am a big Misty fanboy, and like um, you know even Josh, Danny, like everybody, J- Joe, everybody in this room, like I know you guys. Like the listeners may not know all of y'all, or they may be familiar with like your episode. But I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of really big deal people that have been on this show, and there's a lot of really big deal people that are involved in this show. And so, when I talked to Joe about it, I was like, "Well, my actual incident's not that big of a deal." I was like, "But what I would love to be able to do," and this is long before, like, like you're like sprinkles and icing on on the cake that when he brought up Doc was going to be here. But is the education and the mental health piece of it because? Like, we started working on the mental health stuff, and I didn't realize it at the time. We started working on the mental health stuff the minute the ambulance pulled into the hospital um, with the guys I work with. We started with the joking, and the, it wasn't even like the gallows humor that you used to hearing about. It was little stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Rocky Munster was working for those, if, if you, for the listeners, obviously they don't know Rocky, but some of us here at the table know Rocky. Rocky, it didn't matter what time of day it was, Rocky always had a pair of Oakleys on. And so Rocky was working an extra job at the Walmart when he heard it come out and he left the extra job and went to the hospital. He actually opened the doors on the ambulance when I pulled up to the bay and he's sitting there and it's again, it's 1230 at night His Oakley's are on his forehead. Like he hasn't worn those things in like six hours, right? But they're on his forehead and he opens the ambulance and I was like, oh my God, I've never seen your eyes before. (laughs) and he's just like oh this dude yeah (laughs) this guy's like oh he must be out of it like what is what is wrong with him because i'm cracking jokes about his sunglasses Mm -hmm. as they're pulling the stretcher out absolutely and i'm like man i've never seen your eyes before you know and they just kind of shake their head and then they roll me into the hospital yeah but the whole thing was from folks that were there like the whole thing was just like a poorly written cop sitcom the whole time we were in the hospital um Kelly got in trouble with the nurse because I was supposed to go into surgery, so you're not supposed to eat anything, right? So they're handing me the ice chips because I'm thirsty. Uh-huh. We can't drink anything, so they're giving me these stupid ice chips. And Kelly's sitting there with a roll of sprees. And Chewy like, or hard? Hard one. The, okay. the OG, real deal, got silver Ooh, foil yeah. <laughs> sprees. I like the purple ones, yeah. <laughs> so, well, and that's that's the problem is, so Kelly's standing over me, and he's like, he kind of looks at me, and I kind of nod, and then he, I open my mouth like baby bird, and he drops a spree into my mouth, and I'm sitting there, and I'm chewing on my little spree. He's hand, he's hand feeding me ice, and finally the nurse comes in, and she's like, I haven't had enough ice, I guess. She's like, you need, don't get dehydrated, you need more ice. I got bags hooked up. I think dehydration was the least of my problems at this point. So I, she's like, here, have some more ice. I'm like, oh crap. I open my mouth, <laughs> and my tongue is like green and purple and yellow. And Kelly's standing there and he's got the little tube of sprees in his hand. He's like, <laughs> Busted. it's like super obvious what's going on. But the nurse is, you know, so the nurse gets mad at Kelly. But again, we're all laughing. We're joking about yeah. it. And that started like in the trauma bay um, with the laughing and the joking and the normalizing and the, well, now that I've read some books and watched some videos, you know, now I, now I can throw around all these words and stuff. But at the time we were just,
2: it's how you guys got We were crowded. just friends.
1: Yeah,
0: We were just friends hanging out. Yeah. Um, my poor friend, Ashley, she's in the room. They start cutting my clothes off. So the only other officer in the room with me is a female officer. And, uh, I mean, again, at that point I didn't care. Um, I was more mad. They were cutting my pants off. They were brand new pants. Like I got the most money I've ever spent on a pair of jeans gotcha. and I just bought them. Lucky brand. And so they, <laughs> so they go to start cutting my jeans off and I'm like, no, 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 no. I got this. I got this. I got this. So I'm like one handed trying to undo my belt and cut my jeans off in the, the, er guys they weren't having it so there's like right on my pant leg so they cut all my clothes off me and poor ashley she's standing here next to me at the bed they cut all my clothes off me and throw a sheet over me and they're wheeling me to the to get a cat scan and you know the hallway's full of cops right and uh anybody that's ever been at the hospital when somebody's hurt it just rains police at the hospital so we pull out of the room and uh, Ashley's sitting there, like holding my hand. We're walking out, or they're wheeling me out because my family's not even there yet. And uh, I look at Ashley, and I'm like, "It was cold. It's cold in there. It was cold." And she <laughs> they just
5: keep it cold. In there, she, huh? Yeah.
0: And I was like, "Hey, it was it, it's it's it was just because it's cold in there." And she's just turning beet red. And I'm like, "You know, there's chiefs and there's like important people in the hallway." And you know, I'm I'm cracking like naked yeah. cold jokes, and. But like everybody there was we were all doing that, absolutely, and so, like from the very beginning, like the cracking the jokes and stuff like that, I think that kept me I wasn't thinking about everything else, right you know, things got you know when the family got there and th- then it was
2: that was more real
0: well yeah, then yeah. it got real when the family showed up and stuff, yeah. but at the time, it's just a bunch of my idiots from work being it- you know we're just right. idiots being idiots, right. So,
2: that's what got you grounded, right? Yeah. All, of, all of you, everybody who's responding is so worried about you that, that the humor kicks in and, and it keeps everybody grounded. That's a, that's a great coping mechanism. And, of course, it's the ultimate coping mechanism in law enforcement and public safety, really. And so good on you and good on your team for, for participating in it. I think you set the tone as soon as those uh, ambulance doors open, you know, and you saw your buddy with the Oakleys on his forehead. And you're oh, like, it's- oh, <laughs> it's perfect. That is, and that is great camaraderie right there. What what happens is it starts the healing process right away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing but
0: love. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like I said, I, w- I wish, you know, I, I can't take credit for it. It's just the group of folks that I worked around at the time. Everything was, you know, it just, yeah. we were just having fun. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Kind of once we knew everything was going to be okay, we were just having fun.
5: You have a, a unique perspective because technically you were robbed, correct? Oh,
0: no. Yeah, no. 100%. As a civilian. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. so
5: your our civilian listeners out there um can listen to you and take from that incident your mindset because n- none of us here at this table have been robbed like that as a civilian and afterwards did you second guess yourself because you're a police officer
0: oh 100 percent. i think that was that was probably more the trauma from anything than the actual shooting was i mean i felt like emasculated i'm like hey you know I, I'm better than this Like this shouldn't Like how did this guy Get a jump on me You know I'm like You know I'm I'm a young Didn't know any better cop I'm out there doing You know What we do all the time Exactly the reason Why Sarge said Stop getting at You know Exactly what he said Was going to happen Basically happened And I felt Like that night I was just a crime stat Right You know That night I was just another And these two guys Actually They had robbed two girls Right before us Right before me I guess and I guess the robbery was unsuccessful, so Plan B was they were going to come down to Oak Cliff, and and hit another lick before they went home for the night. And again, I wouldn't have, I would have been the last person to try to rob. I didn't look like somebody that I would rob necessarily, but that wasn't that's one of the things that kind of weighed on me was it wasn't like it was some cool heroic officer involved shooting. I was just some schmuck walking down a sidewalk. You know, they just happened to. If nothing else, they were the ones that were unlucky in that they picked a cop to rob. You know, it's, you know, that's why I even talked to you guys before about some of these other, you know, critical incidents folks have been involved in, like they were doing cop stuff. You know, I was walking on a sidewalk.
5: But you mentioned they got the jump on you and I can see how a cop's mentality would be like, how did they get the jump on me?
0: 100%.
5: And so, and then how do you take yourself through that and come back to where you are right now?
0: I I don't know if I have an answer to that one. I mean, like I said, that's the one that bugged me the most. That's the one that kept me awake the most was, you know, Angela kind of cracked a joke on me. I've got the stainless P226, very nice SIG, you know, I spent a lot of extra money on. And at one time, long after all the the main stuff had happened, you know, Angela's like, hey, I had that that big fancy gun workout for you, you know? (laughs) And, like, I spent a lot of time at the range. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at the range and, you know, and and this kind of stuff. And I I love the tactical side of all this and to have just some guy, no training, just a criminal, like 100% get the jump on me. Like from there's all day long, like he, he won, like I am Owen one in gunfights. Like there's no, no if, ands or buts. I lost that 100%. That really bugged me. You know, that got into me as, as not just a cop, but like as a, as a, as a, as a male, as sure. a guy, as a, whatever you want to say, like that hit a part of me that it hit different, you know, basically. You know, it's not like, you know, we were in a, some kind of officer involved situation and, you know, I won or he won or whatever happened. You know, it was like, hey, like me as a, like I as a person, like Mark felt that, right? Not like Officer Rickman felt it, but like Mark lost that. And so that, that part hurt. So,
2: you know, when you were talking about um your spidey senses and you're you're describing that situation, they were driving normally, they stopped at the stop sign, 3 to 5 seconds, they start driving again. Like there was nothing in the car's behavior that that brought your senses up, right? So you were, you know, condition yellow, you know, you were you're basically just you're you're talking to your buddy. You're, you know, you, you You've you've been through this two and a half hours of your shift so far. You've already been made. You're in your whole mindset is is you're you're not you're not, you know, chasing a bad guy. You're not you're not encountering a bad guy. They stop at the stop sign. They don't even run the stop sign. They Mm -hmm. don't even grab your attention at all. Right. And so that's that's how they got the jump on you. If there was anything odd about their behaviors, you would have been like, oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? And it would have been it would have been a completely different scenario. Right, and they obviously had practiced or planned or discussed how they were going to whip in next to you and jump out. And he, you know, I mean, he, even though he got the jump on you, though, the bottom line, the bottom line in all of this is that is that you survived. You never gave up. You didn't panic, right? You you shot back with your non dominant hand with your big old weapon, and uh, and you you know the bottom line is you succeeded, and that's all that matters. In in the you know when we look when we look back at it, that's all that matters is that you, you came out successful.
3: I think, too, Mark, I'm going to dovetail with that and what Misty was talking about and go back to that training piece. You, First of all, we're glad you survived. Obviously, everyone is, even though sometimes you're hard to look at. But uh, I love you, too, Josh. But um, we go back to that training piece, you know, and, yeah, it's instinctive, like Misty was saying. As a police officer, we feel like we probably failed at that point, right? These are things that we don't get involved in. These are things that don't happen to us. But the problem is, too, when we when we drop our uniform – And even when we have a uniform, people are ambushed. All these officers are ambushed daily, Mm -hmm. right, with uniforms on, in marked police cars. But more so when you're in plain clothes, you strip yourself of any of that identity. Thus, internally, you know, we still feel like, yeah, this is us, though. So, yeah, I can see... Where part of that would be, but where she was talking about the the academy, and we've talked about it several times and touched on it many times, not only the mental aspect of it. And I know they, the academy used to have an officer survival class. I don't know you were out there for quite some time. Did they ever touch on any pieces of these type of things? I, I know uh, Whit was out there when he talked about his shooting and a few other officers, but have they gone in depth that you know of the, um, with this, Misty?
5: Yeah, they they take from the Grossman course. Okay. The the, the mindset. the the believing that you will survive but you can read these instruction these courses you can go through these courses but you've been there Mm -hmm. you've been vulnerable and you survived it and so listeners can listen to what you went through and can feel it and and then afterwards you still have years later where you're still having to deal with questioning yourself and i'm sure being in situations that make you very um on guard and uncomfortable and so I, I feel like it's great for civilians to hear that. Yeah. That even a police officer is vulnerable with training and, um, and how you fought through it in the moment. I, I think more people can take from that than just a course.
3: And, and, and I think that was going to be part of the point was you feel like you don't have a story, but yeah, you, you have a story you, instinctively. This entire event, uh, it was hard to listen to. I was sitting over here. I was wincing. I had to like quench my eyes and all this. It just, Because you know what's happening and what's coming next. Now, I've never heard your entire story. I just knew that you'd gotten shot and you were on deployment. but And no fault to you, but what tactical training had you had with this type of similar instance up to that point? Now, when you went to narcotics, oh yeah, yeah, we trained for those type of things. But uh, at this point, yeah, you're just a young officer out walking around, bebopping. We're police officers. We're invincible. I'm good. I've been to the range. I've done this, that, and the other. But looking at it from this perspective now looking back in your career and the places you've been, what can you say? What pieces are, uh, and, and, and we use the term tactical all the time, right? But it is, it's tactics and uh, survival like Doc was talking about uh, with your mental aspect, being able to survive that piece. But now looking back, you know, how has this impacted your either influence Or how serious you take that training, because there are so many training points. As you know now, looking at this, you know how how does that impacted you throughout your career? Or and then have you inspired or done something for somebody else to to uh, you you know not to pay it forward, but to but to provide that platform from your perspective? Because your your story's incredible. A, it's a story of survival. B, it, it it lends so much, like Misty and Doc have talked about. From a I guess there's there's
0: two parts of the training thing for me. Um, there's like again we we throw around the term tactical so easily. You slap tactical on something and all it gives it so much more credence, right? <clears throat> but like from a tactical standpoint, like we had we had no training on how to deal with this stuff. You know, it was we were we were all young officers. It was super cool. Man, I get to wear jeans. Like I didn't, yeah. and and I'm really dating my story here. But like, you know, we were we didn't have to shave. Like, because once upon a time, like that was a thing. Um, And so it was like, we're just a bunch of young officers. And it was like, man, this is super cool. But there was none of the other stuff that went into it. You know, years later, I go to narcotics and it's, we practice to draw with a coat on. We practice to draw from a concealed position, all that, you know, different things. Um, So like on the operational side, as I'm making my air quotes, like, I don't think at the time there wasn't a lot of training. It was just, you know, on that one, there was some divine intervention involved. Um, I do think though, the mental training, though, the mental preparation was super important. And so I don't know. And I've met Colonel Grossman and if on on the off chance he hears this, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. Um, but like, I don't know how many bootleg copies of the, of his CD I've given to people, um, just so they can listen to it. And like, I've, I've seen him in person twice at the seminar. I've bought all of his books. Um, and I've given copies of those or told people to read it or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, now I've got, I've got doc's book and I've got it dovetailed and highlighted. And I mean, even if you don't have a chance to do the, the operational, the tactical training side of this stuff, which again, the department's changed now, all the deployment guys, they get great training. They go to the, I mean, the department has changed a lot in 16 years. Um, but like the mental training, like take it upon yourself. Like everybody goes to the range, right? Like everybody loves going to the range. They love shooting their guns and whatever. Um, you know, I, I talk like our medical training has stepped up quite a bit, but like, after that I got kind of crazy with the medical stuff. Like I tell people all the time, you know, if you're going to carry bullets carry band-aids, you know, so I carry a trauma kit with me everywhere I go now. Um, um, the mental training, you know, the bulletproof mind docs book, a lot of the, the normalizing stuff like that. That's the side of the training you don't think about. You know, we think of our trainees, like we go to the range or we go, we do this. There's other sides to this. Like, you know, I wish at the time, like, I wish I'd had some kind of trauma kit on me at the time. Yeah. I mean, I've carried one every day since then, every day, um, working plain clothes at the airport. I had a trauma kit on me. Um, I've got a mass casualty kit in my truck right now, on my car right now. You know, I've got probably a dozen Ola's bandages and quick clot and stuff like that. You know, it from a training standpoint, a lot of that changed me. Um, and I'm glad to see the department has progressed. We do a lot more training now. Um, but, man, the more time you spend before something like this happens, like, you come out the other end of it so much better. You know, it's I've, – I've seen a lot of folks involved in critical incidents that that weren't as fortunate as I was. You know, they didn't come out the other side of it as well, you know, physically, mentally, whatever. Um, and that's why, like, I've really been big on – Every person I can talk to um, had a friend of the family. He's a civilian, works for the railroad. He was. They were on their way back from a job site. Random act of violence. Guy drives by and shoots into their van, um, kills his coworker. And a couple hours later, I'm on the phone with him, and I'm like, "Hey, one shout out to the podcast, but I'm like, hey, listen to this episode of this podcast, and listen to Dr. Glenn." And we talked for like three hours on the phone, just talking him through it, and I went through docs. You know, in seven days, this needs to start to fade. If after 14 days, you're still have, it's still at the front of your mind, you know, you need to seek professional help, this and that. But like, I I love being able to talk to people now and be like, hey man, it's not, let's just talk. You know, let's talk. And there's just, I don't, we'll never be able to do that enough. And I know I'm rambling now, but like, I believe in it so much that as, as cops, as firefighters, as military, whatever, first, whatever you want to, whatever, shell you want to put yourself in. You know, is the, like the mental training side of this, like if you can get ahead of it, like man, I can't even begin to describe how much how much
5: benefit there is to that. You brought her book in today, Dr. Glenn's book mm-hmm. and each of us have read it, but you obviously have some some pieces of that book that are marked uh, I'm going to put you on the spot bring something from that book that really spoke to you, the biggest piece, something that we can share with our listeners that you feel like impacted you.
0: Man, for those of you that listen, there is there is zero show prep on this one. This, Missy yeah, legit I just, like to put yeah, people on the legit, spot. Like, I thought that was something y'all staged for the episode. You no, saw the this uh, is a heart-shaped bookmark. Well, When you, in the when you bring out. in a book
5: and, and <laughs> with it. notes, I, I, I want to know, and I want our listeners to know, what is it that spoke to you? Because listen to what you've been through. The
0: the the Southwest Airlines swizzle uh, stick, swizzle stick. There, um, <laughs> I know what that is. Oh, my In in there, well, Doc brings up in the book. She talks about with with EMTs, how the, you know, um, specifically. It's a uh, when they talk about they can't really start an IV while standing in a quiet room. Instead, they say they can nail an IV in in, in total chaos. Um, one of the EMTs, he actually started my IV in the ambulance, like as we jumped. Um, the intersection at like Jefferson and Polk or something was while he was sticking and like one time, one, one time stick while we're like Dukes of hazarding it. So as I'm reading her book, I just started laughing (laughs) at myself. Smoking (laughs) a cigarette while he's doing it. Yeah. I mean, it was awesome. He's like, Hey, here's the best part of the whole thing. This guy's about to start a, an IV in me. We're in the ambulance. We're running like code nine to the freaking hospital. We're jumping intersections. Um, He's like, uh, you're gonna feel a little stick. <laughs> 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 nah, dude, I think I'm good. Um, but uh, and it's, I think, I think it's the, it's, it's what I just talked about is, is I've got highlighted and dog-eared and everything else in here. Um, for the and, and Doc says, for the first few days following such an event, it is quite normal to uh, constantly replay it many times over. Uh, what I explained to first responders is this: by seven days after the incident, I want these images, smells, and sounds to seem like they're fading to your long-term memory. And then she says some other great stuff. And then it says, if after 14 days, you're still experiencing those distressing sights, smells, and sounds, or if you're still having nightmares about the event, I want you to get help. So, like, I mean, you guys can see the book. I've got it highlighted. And I told Jill, like, my purpose for this book is I don't plan on holding on to this. Um, Like, I bought it. I bought it off Amazon. Shout out to Amazon. Um, I bought it. I highlighted it. I'd love to get Doc to sign it. That'd be awesome if you would do that for me. I'd be honored. Um, But, like, I want to give this to somebody else. I've already read it. It's a
5: great idea.
0: I've already read it. I mean, I've already got the information. Like I've read it. I've highlighted some stuff that maybe somebody else will find interesting. I've dog-eared a section on, um, PTSD. Um, and then I've dog-eared it because I'm, I'm involved in our peer support group here. Um, I dog-eared some of the peer support stuff. So like if, if that piece touches somebody, um, but like I've already absorbed this. So I'm on, it's, and again, I'm not trying to take money out of your pocket, but you know, I'd love for everybody. I'd love for everybody to buy a copy of doc's book. Um, (laughs) Uh. but, uh,
1: Pass
2: it like, on. I want to give it to somebody yeah, else. thank you. And that's then amazing. when
0: somebody else, and then, you know, when they're done with it, give it to somebody else. You want them to sign it, right? Yeah. Anybody, uh-huh. anybody that's had that it, region? you want them to sign it. Yeah.
1: That way, when you pay it forward, it, it shows in the book who else had it.
2: That's amazing. And that's,
0: that was something I was telling Joe I'd like to see done is, I mean, I'm going to put my name in it, and then I'm going to give it to somebody else. And I'd love to see that person, if they read it, and then they give it to somebody else. Because here's the thing, and you touch on it, and we've all talked about it offline. There is still the stigma. There is still, we don't like getting help, right? So maybe if I give you this book and it's like, hey, maybe you should read this book. And it's like, great. He's giving me some self-help book. Wonderful. Um, But then you look in here and you're like, well, all right, I know this guy and I know this guy and I know this girl and I know this guy and I know this girl. And it's like, here's the other people that have read this. So it's not just me.
5: Right.
0: I'm not the only one broken. I'm not the only one dealing with this. And I know that because like Joe called it a library book. Uh Uh-huh. Here's all the other people that have checked out this book. Yeah, that's amazing. So, I mean, amazing. none of none of us walk around and say, "Hey, yeah, uh, I was in a situation, I got help." Like we don't have T-shirts. You know, if we want to get some made, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, um, that's a good ring. idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anybody would like to sponsor bridging the divide T-shirts, um, but uh, like we don't have T-shirts or anything. So, like, you have ideas? If somebody's a friend, like you know, Joe came to me about the show there are a ton of people in this department that have been involved in stuff that some of us may not even know about because we don't work with those people. And so we don't know how they got to the other side of it. I mean, if they're still with us, they obviously got to the other side one way or another, some better, some worse, you know, some make it to the other side of the river perfectly fine. Some get to the other side, a little muddy, some are soaking wet. Um, But like, we don't necessarily know everybody's individual journey. And if you realize that there's a bunch of us out here that, Really weren't doing that good, yeah. you know, but however they got through it, you know, they got through it. Um, I know we've we've run run it super long. I know you got somewhere to be. And then the other side of that is like spouses and stuff. Absolutely. And family members. You know, we all talk about ourselves getting help. Right. You know, my wife had a really hard time. My wife probably had a worse time at this than I did. Um, And it's like the department's quick to be like, hey, and no fault to the department. They do the best they can because, again, we don't you can only offer help so much if we don't want to take it. But the department's job is to get us back to work. Well, nobody's checking on your wife or your husband or your kids. Right. You know, the biggest surprise of my life was the fact that when my son told me on the back porch of our house that he wanted to be police, I was like,
5: yeah.
0: First, I was like, look, man, you know better. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, you, he was 10 years old when this happened. And so, but now he's, he's at Southwest. With worked. that
5: mustache. What's going on with that
0: mustache? I mean, if it was just a mustache, I wouldn't have that big of a deal about it, but you know. The uh but he has the same days off I have.
5: Nice. He
0: works the same eight to four schedule I worked at the same at you know, at the best station in the city.
5: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again,
0: Ed, Danny, edit that out, please. Um hey and then I, I got love from my central folks too, but uh but you know, it's you know, the fact that he followed in my footsteps or whatever, you know, it's I was worried about him being broken too. Yeah.
2: So I just want to say a couple things. Number one, what you're doing by talking to others, by sharing the book, we call that post-traumatic growth. And The mantra of post-traumatic growth is I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but it's made me better, stronger, wiser. And I have this wisdom, which causes gray hair, and I'm going to share it with others. And so we pay it forward, right? That's 95% of my peer support teams are people with post-traumatic growth wisdom. And I just love that. That is my my favorite type of employee in any any organization are the people who pay it forward because they've walked through hell and they want to help other people and they want to help them avoid all the pitfalls, right? Right. The other thing I want to say is you're right about the family. I wrote a family book as well, and what we do in our practice now, we're making it standard, is that we're getting the first responder in, but we want to to touch base with the spouse or significant other. We want to see their kids. We want to make sure because what happens is if we heal an officer – and the family's kind of left behind at the starting line. The officer goes down the road happy, healthy, just good to go. And meanwhile, the family's at the starting line and they resent the officer for their healing. And they're like, I'm not where you are, so screw you for your happiness, you know? And so we really try to get the families involved as well. So I think. Across the board, it's, you know, it's the officer, it's their shift, it's their close unit, it's their academy brothers and sisters, it's their family. Like, it, it's a comprehensive, really work in progress of people who need, who may need help. And so, I'm so glad you brought that up. And, and you know, kudos to your wife for surviving it and surviving that phone call where you hung up on her. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that doesn't get brought up yeah. at all. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Ever. Yeah, so I would do the same. You know, I'm married to a police officer. I would, I would, have, had a, I would have had a fucking fit, right? So, yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) but yeah Yeah. Yeah. we'll make this episode explicit (laughs) right now (laughs) I'll go ahead Dr. Glenn's cussing again I I worked so hard
0: (laughs) to to rein myself in so I wouldn't get the explicit tag well yeah too late it's Uh. explicit
1: you you talked about your son he's now in the department now at Southwest and now you're in DPD recruiting yes sir uh, which is totally shifting gears from getting shot up at Southwest deployment to going undercover narcs and right now you know, more than anybody, it's very hard to get people to become a police officer. Can you describe that? Uh, What's it like to be over recruiting in this climate?
0: It's one of the things, and, and I've spoke with folks, my counterparts across the country, it's kind of like a one, two punch that we've got going on right now is there's a societal change that's kind of negatively affecting us and where there's just not as many people involved. And some of that may be, you know, the F the police generation or whatever. Um, Or, you know, just that little vocal minority as they were. Um, There's some that probably don't want to have to deal with that. They're like, man, I would love to be a cop, but, you know, X, Y, Z. And then, you know, we're still in the whatever phase of COVID where it's, you know, we can't just walk onto a college campus like we used to be able to and say, You know, hey, have you thought about being a police officer or um, even our military installations? um, DoD is shutting some stuff down because of COVID, so some of the career fairs and stuff at the the military installations. So it's it's like this two part thing of we can't go out there and do what we've normally done to get more people interested, and then the pool of people that are interested is starting to dry up a little bit. You know, and again for several factors, there's the folks that just now they don't want to do it because it's just societal, and then I think the heavy burden is the folks that don't want to deal with with stuff. You know, we talk to old heads all the time that are like, oh, man, body cams and no chase policy. Man, I I couldn't be police no more. I couldn't be police no more. Now there's people on the other side of that that there at the beginning of it that are like, no, I couldn't do that job. I don't I don't want to. No." I turn on the news and there's people getting spit on. There's, you know, there's this and that. There's yeah, politicians coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When you've got folks that are, you know, that, that carry some weight. You know, that, that, that question everything we do. And, and I'm not that, I'm not that, you know, stand hard on the thin blue line. We're, we're without fault, all that kind of stuff. I and mean, we're human. You know, you talk about that, that the, I listen to the intro to the show. I never skipped the intro to the show. Um, when you talk about, you know, we're, we're people and we make mistakes too. You know, it's, it's, there's, I'll be the first one to admit that, you know, it's, there's, um, it almost sounds cliche, but, you know, nobody hates a bad cop as much as a good cop. Right. Um, but you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. And I think there's just this combined there's a lot of stuff going on. Um and so there's that, that two part thing that's there's the societal change that's gone on, and then of course there's just our the challenges to the traditional recruiting model of we can't go out there and talk to people now. You know, so we're we're looking at doing you know, yeah. we we're trying to increase our social media presence. We're you know, we've gotta get people where they're at. Um However long, like my phone is off and it's on the floor and I'm, I'm almost having to grab one of those stress balls because it's like the longest I've not been on my phone and I don't know how long. Um, so everybody has one of those with them now. So it's like, well, all right, how do we get into an applicant's phone? You know, not literally, uh, from a, uh, you know, a civil rights standpoint, I don't mean to get into their phone, but you know, how do we, how do we reach out to them? And, and the easiest way to do it is, you know, Danny's got a phone right now. So Like, how do I get onto the thing that we spend the most time on? These campaigns send out these random texts to
1: you. I've got got plenty, I'm not going to mention any names, texts from many politicians wanting me to vote for them. Oh, yeah. And I had some fun with them responding back saying, sorry, I can't vote. I'm a convicted felon. Then they actually responded, (laughs) oh, yeah. What was the felony? They like yeah. minimizing it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm serious.
0: Let's, let's walk through. this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it is it like a upper? How bad is that? Yeah, is it an uppercase F? And then, I, and then or I,
1: like a- I sent back a really bad one, and then I had a long pause, and then and then uh, I'm not gonna say what they said, but anyway, it was it was kind of it was entertaining to me. Um, I had a, I had somebody in another department up in Pennsylvania uh, reach out to me just this week. Uh, wanting us to talk about recruiting, they're thinking about a lateral transfer from uh Pennsylvania to Texas and they're looking at the D F W area and um he's interested in Dallas. Uh can you kind of describe uh the lateral transfer process?
0: Yeah, um so that's that's one of the things, you know, we've we've you've already had Chief on the show. Um they uh uh you know and and, and a lot of things have changed around here. It's you know I'm 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 gonna jump on the bandwagon and say things are a lot better here than they've been before um but you know chief is pushing a a lateral transfer policy we've always had a policy um but it's always been kind of pay-based like we would pay you for three four five years of your experience you'd come on at a higher pay rate um but what we're really working on now they've developed a um what's the word i want is i'm beating on the table the microphone's on um uh a accelerated accelerated a condensed academy basically so we've broken it down from our typical eight to nine month academy um to a 12-week academy for laterals
5: Abbreviated,
0: an abbreviated academy thank you did yes that's the exact word i was supposed to use per the flyer um an abbreviated academy that's 12 weeks long um cops being type John. a's there's a lot of folks that are like man i can't I, I just can't go back to an academy i had a conversation with the nypd guy um works a foot foot beat has like Tuesday, Wednesdays off, third watch. So he walks around New York, and um, and I was just up there last week, and it was it was cold, um, and so he works a works a foot beat. Tuesday, Wednesday off, third watch. Nothing glamorous about it. He calls asking about the lateral program initially, um, and he's like, "No, nah, man, I just I can't see me going back to an academy." I was like, "Man, it's Monday through Friday, eight to five, weekends off. We're, we're gonna pay you." 70 plus thousand dollars a year to work out and read books. I'm like, that sounds pretty cake to me, right? And the guy's like, no, man, I just can't go through another academy. And like, that was where the conversation ended. He's like, man, I just can't do it. So this abbreviated academy is is we're hoping with the abbreviated academy, we can bring in some more folks from that. Um, We do targeted recruiting. 10% of our applicants right now are coming from New York. Uh, Approximately 10% of our applicants are coming from the Chicago area right now. And a lot of those folks are active police officers. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of political stuff going on in the country right now. And some of these other agencies, some of these other States, um, for the folks that don't understand qualified immunity, it's like New York lost qualified immunity. Um, and that's, that's a giant deal. Um, we get emails almost daily. Um, hey, do you guys require the vaccine? Because I work for agency XYZ and we're required, you know, I don't want the vaccine and we were, requ- and you know, DPD currently doesn't have a vaccine mandate and to my knowledge, there's no plan to have one. Um, so there's folks looking to, you know, pull up stakes and move all the way to Texas just cause they don't want to get the jab, you know? So it's, um, with a lot of the political stuff that's going on nationwide in some of these cities and some of these areas that are in my, my personal opinion, you know, not the official opinion of the Dallas police department, but some of these folks that undervalue their officers, um, we get a lot of contact from those folks now. And I would, you know, I would love to treat them to some, you know, some brisket and a Shiner and, you know, come on down to Texas. Right. You know, it's with the exception of today, you know, it's not that cold here. You know, we've lots of sunshine in the summer. Um, you know, come on, if, you know, the guy from Pennsylvania, I've already told you, give him my email. Um, yep. I talk to folks all the time that are looking to make a change and man, we'd love to have you. Uh, just it kind of is what it is there's there's a lot of stuff going on that we don't deal with here and uh I can't I guess it's it was fortuitous that I got this job um but i I love this job I mean I'm a nerd for anybody that works with me when they see me running around the office yelling and cussing like I get mad at incident like I get upset at certain things but a lot of the things I get upset about are like I'm very protective of of subordinate I'm very protective of my troops and i'm very uh, I get... I love this job so much that I don't like seeing it done wrong or inefficiently or whatever it is. So, you know, I get upset about some things because I, I love this job that much. I mean, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm big on this job. I can't imagine doing anything else, and I can't imagine doing it anywhere else. It was fortuitous that I got this chance. Um, Chief Foy, you know, shout out, uh, for, for taking a chance with me. And putting me in this position because there's you know there's nothing there's nothing I'd rather do right now than kind of like bring in the next generation of you know Dallas police officers because let's be honest I'm looking at the table here and no offense to anybody but you know we're getting older it's for some of us that are in offices now when well, it's time to pass the torch and uh you know it, it I can't be prouder than when I get calls from people I used to work with that call me and tell me about my kid and I know that you know I feel confident that next generation of cop, it's like policing didn't end when we left the streets. Like there's still good cops out there doing good cop stuff, and just need more of them. I'm working on it, Josh. You're doing a good job. Mark. <laughs> I'm working You're on doing it. Doing a you great know? job. You know, DallasPolice.net forward slash join DPD. In
1: dealing with your physical injuries you sustain, the emotional injuries. What would you tell your fellow first responders, police, fire, military? What can they do to break the stigma to come forward and, and seek out help and, and understand that they actually need the help before it come, becomes a crisis?
5: I
0: think the before it becomes a crisis is kind of the thing. Everybody's going to need help. You might just need a little, you might need a lot. And like I talked about, everybody kind of crosses that river in sort of a different condition. Um, everybody needs something. You know, it's not, this isn't normal. You know, the stuff we do, and it doesn't just mean a critical incident. Uh, you know, Doc even talks about just, just the job, just years on the job, the stuff you see, the stuff you do, whether you're the blue side of the house, the red side of the house, all my military buddies, it grades at you You know, it, it, it slowly but surely breaks you down. Everybody needs something. And I think the faster you sort of get on it, and I don't know if Doc would agree, I may be talking at my rear end here. Um, oh, we already got the explicit. Yeah, so, Yeah, I may be talking at my ass here, but... Um, The faster you get on it, I mean, the, the higher likelihood that you're going to make it out the other side, you know, in some kind of shape. So just, just look, man, if I'm talking to somebody right now, look, man, we all, we all go get help. There's just, some of us talk about it. Some of us don't just go get the damn help. Just go get the help and go get it today. You know, I told Joe at some point we were at some event and I was like, you know, as, as, as soon as you stop the bleeding, you've, you've got to start the healing. Right. I mean, like. That's like, start it here, start it now and just go get the help. I mean, we've all done it. Don't be afraid to admit it, you know, sign the book, give it to somebody else, move on. I don't know. I I can't, I I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but man, I can't speak highly enough about just do it. I don't understand where the stigma came from. Maybe it was a different, it was a generational thing. I don't know.
2: It was from the 1950s when uh, the psych wards had the big, like, gnarly oak trees and the wrought iron gates and were full of people who were really literally crazy. That's where that came from. And then as America started to accept mental health issues and treatment, um, there was nobody who was really good at it for public safety. There was just a bunch of therapists who would start crying when you told your story of a normal day. And so um, police fire and EMS were like, well, the rest of America can go get help, but we don't have anybody who understands this, so we'll just suck it up. And that's where the stigma has continued and public safety. And so, yeah, but, but more and more, there's more and more people like me, you know, really riding out, you know, I put myself through the Austin police Academy. So like, I got my ass beat every day. I loved it. I cut off all my hair. It was amazing. (laughs) I, I don't want to do it again, but, but you don't have to be that extreme, but just, I'm meeting more and more therapists who are married to police officers who, you know, who ride, who go and, and, you know, do all the things that they need to do to understand it. So, more and more, as we get those people on board, then then go get the help, get the right help, you know,
5: absolutely.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I mean, like Doc's legit. Like if you've read the book or you've talked to her, like the ride-alongs and the, with with the police, with fire, with, with you know, we work with the Marines. The, I mean, that's the thing is, good helps out there. Yeah. Why are we? Why are Why are you not going to get it? I mean,
5: I think that um, Dr. Glenn, you truly understand our culture, and I think that's the work that you put in. I mean, for example, today she got up at 2 a.m. to work out, took a flight to get here to be here on this podcast today, and it just proves to all of us that you care and that you really understand our culture, and it's um, amazing. Thank you, thank you.
1: I want to thank Sergeant Rickerman for coming on and telling the story. It's not easy. Yeah, he's a sergeant for now. He scored very high in the lieutenant's test, and oh, he's going to be—he might be lieutenant that. before this is uh, released.
0: Oh man, let's not jinx that. <laughs> I would, I would gladly supervise you any day, Josh. <laughs> I think
1: it's a perfect way to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank him for coming on, Dr. Tanya Glenn for coming to town, uh, Josh, Misty, uh, Danny being here. We're continuing to bridge the divide in a lot of ways, and I look forward. Hopefully, maybe you'll be my lieutenant soon. God. We'll see. Oh,
0: God. If you guys could jinx that anymore, that'd be really, <laughs> that'd be really super awesome.
1: Mark, thanks for coming on. Thank
0: you for your service. Thank you so much. Thank you for your thanks service. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thank you all for everything you do. I and mean, Doc, thank you. seriously, thank you, thank you, so, you much. so
4: much. Thank you. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, missus, hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. And when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. The life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll up from the bottom, yeah, we'll rise above. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the Sorry. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up.